Uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse uh, 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you'd enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you'd be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, kind of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do keep it open uh, in front of you. I'm just going to pray for us to become to God. Our Father, we, your church, desperately need to hear your voice this morning. We need to be fed uh, by you. We need to have our hearts and our minds uh, set aright where they have gone astray. We need to be comforted uh, where we weep. We need to be convicted uh, where we have uh, fallen into sin. Uh, We need to be challenged uh, to go out and live for Christ uh, day by day in our lives. Pray you do that through your word for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Brad Hansen, I'm sure none of you have heard of, but Brad Hansen uh, wrote a book called The Truth About Us. Uh, captioned the very good news about how very bad we are, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek. But the premise is this, that we are very successful at deluding ourselves about how good we are. And we generally believe it. So we're very successful at forgetting our flaws and our mistakes. And we're very good at obsessing and inflating our credentials, the things that we enjoy and think are good about ourselves. And we often even reshape our memories and our facts uh, to fit the picture that we have of ourselves. We're very good at deluding ourselves. If you imagine going and sitting next to someone in a coffee shop and asking them, are you a good person? Would you say that you are more moral than average? I reckon you'll find invariably that the answer is yes. Or consider yourself and listen to this quote from the book that Brandt uh, wrote. A whole lot of us go through life 
assuming that we are basically right, basically all the time, about basically everything, about our political intellectual convictions, our religious and moral beliefs, our assessment of other people, even our memories and our grasp of facts. You're saying that we're very good at convincing ourselves that we're basically right about everything. And one of the points of the book is to get us to examine the data about ourselves in a kind of objective, cold light of day way and discover that actually we live most of our life in a delusion. We're not as good as we thought. And, and that's actually something the Bible has been teaching us for centuries. As it's at the heart of this message, as our, as our first point this morning, verse 16 through to 20, so our goodness is a delusion. Our goodness is a delusion. Behold, the passage begins. Something different, something, something new is here. A man comes. And we later find out that he's a, a rich man, a young man. He's different to the sinners and the lepers and the children of just the previous passage who've been coming to Jesus. You can imagine disciples finally rubbing their hands. Here's someone, someone good, someone who can really benefit our ministry. And then he asks this question, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Not only is he rich and young, but he's spiritually in earnest. How I would love to have this question asked of us from our friends and our families. What, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? How, how amazing it would be if people walked in our, in our door uh, who weren't Christians and, and were asking that question. Although it does seem for many of us today that people are so uninterested spiritually lethargic, not in earnest. Uh, what someone says can tell us quite a lot about someone, can't it? So children, children, if someone says to you, when's lunch? And you know that they're probably quite hungry, don't you? What they say can, can tell you a lot about a person. And this man says, what must I do to have? What must I do to have? What good deed, what charitable action? What spiritual discipline do I need to take up to secure me eternal life? And his assumption is this, that heaven is within his reach, isn't it? I just need to know the right things. Isn't that often what we assume? I just need to do the right things and I'll get there. I'll have it. It'll be mine. And Jesus' Jesus' initial reply just gently pokes back at that, isn't it? Doesn't it? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if there's only one who is good, shouldn't that raise doubts in your mind about asking what good deed you could do to get into heaven? But it's also saying, why are you asking me? The man doesn't know that he's the son of God. So why are you asking me? It is God alone who's good. And so it's God alone that you take this question of salvation too about good deeds and eternal life. My mum very sweetly Yesterday, wrote on my whiteboard uh, a verse from Psalm 119. Although she wrote it in Hebrew, so I couldn't read it. But once she translated it, it says this, You are good, talking to God, and what you do is good. Teach me your statutes. And that's exactly what Jesus does here, isn't it? That God alone is good. So he looked to his commandments, looked to his rules. So God has not left it a mystery as to the goodness he requires. Don't look beyond God to something else. Uh, but look to God and see what he says. Go to his commandments. But Jesus says, if you were to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, a common 
way of interpreting this, and a common way people often come to this, is saying that Jesus really knows that this man can't keep the commandments. He really knows man's fall short, that he hasn't done it. And so he's just trying to trip him up, trying to catch him out. But he knows that actually going to heaven has nothing to do with keeping God's commandments. That's not the way it works. Uh, But I think he says, verse 17, with some sincerity, partly because he's actually virtually quoting what God himself says in the Old Testament, uh, but also throughout the rest of Matthew, we know he has a very high view of the law. Matthew 5, he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it until heaven and earth pass away. Not one dot, not one iota will pass from the law. It's good to be absolutely clear that he's not teaching that keeping God's commandments will earn you eternal life. It's very clear on that. That's the assumption of the rich young man, isn't it? And he's saying something different, I think. I know the subtle difference between what the rich young man says and what Jesus says. The rich young man says, what good deed must I do to have, to own, to possess? Jesus says, if you would enter life, if you would walk into heaven, keep the commandments. The rich young man treats God's commandments like a marketplace. Here's what you say, I've done it, now give me heaven. But Jesus says, not like a marketplace, where you buy life. No, it's it's rather a road uh, that you walk on, where you find the gates of heaven on. Put another way around, no man or woman who's openly fleeing from keeping God's commandments will ever find the gate to eternal life. That's more of a side point, really. The man asks, which ones? Which which seems a reasonable question to ask, doesn't it? Which ones do I have to keep? Jesus replies, uh, down there, he replies essentially commandments five to nine of the Ten Commandments. So, Ten Commandments in, in Exodus, where God gave his commandments to the people of Israel. It essentially creates five to nine. It's all about how we treat other people, as well as love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second table of the law, it's called. It's like Jesus holds up a mirror to the rich young man, holds up a mirror, and says, What do you see? What do you see? And the man's response is absolutely key to understanding this passage. He says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? He is deluded about his own goodness, isn't he? He perceives neither uh, the extent of the command nor the spiritual depth of the command. Uh, imagine uh, one of those cartoons where you have a I don't know, a duck or something running up at someone else and he's got a, a piece of paper in his hand it's a list it's a shopping list maybe and he runs up looks very small and then uh, the person he's speaking to looks, looks fairly happy and shopping list unravels and it unravels down, down, down you know, you know how they do in the cartoon sometimes out for metres and metres and metres occasionally it's hard to think of God's commands a little bit like that it looks small initially doesn't it love your neighbour as yourself But as we begin to think about it, it unravels more and more and more as we apply it to every thought and every action and every word and every desire of our hearts. The smallest spark of hatred or envy or jealousy. As we unravel God's commands and all their details, what the scripture is about doing, our hearts must fall further and further. Who does Jesus say is on the verge of entering 
the kingdom of heaven, knocking on the gates. Well, it's not those who look into the mirror of the law and can say, I have kept, but rather respond, all these I have broken. What hope is there for a wretch like me? Who does he just say is blessed by God earlier in Matthew? Well, it's not the proud, it's not the arrogant, it's not the self-reliant, but it's the poor in spirit. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the mourning and the meek. Why? Well, they're the people who look into God's law and look at the mirror of themselves and feel the ground fall away beneath them as they see how holy as we're singing this morning, how holy God is, how high his standards are, and how short they fall, who don't delude themselves, who don't pretend about their goodness, but cry out, Lord, help me or I'm lost. This man is like someone who looks into a mirror and fails to see what he's really like, fails to see Uh, The pimples on his face, maybe, or or his messy hair, or the spotty mist shaving, or the ketchup on his shirt, and goes away thinking, oh, what a good-looking fellow. What a handsome chap I am. And we share his heart, and we're able to look into God's law without sensing my lack, without sensing... My brokenness, my heart is congealed like this man. My heart is slow and dead like this man. When I hear God's law and yet fail to come and respond in repentance. It's a constant battle of the Christian heart, isn't it? If you're a Christian this morning. To not delude ourselves about our goodness, but to listen to God's law and respond in brokenheartedness over the true nature of what we're like. Our first problem that we see here is that our goodness is a delusion. Verse 21 to 24, Jesus unpicks a deeper, I think, problem this man has. And it's this, second point this morning. Our love is disordered. Our goodness is a delusion and our love is disordered. The man says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus says, if you'd be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Jesus says, when the man said, all these I've kept, you can imagine the apostle Peter, who was with him, rubbing his hands, saying, oh no, but I've heard Jesus teach that to keep the commandment, do not murder, includes not hating someone. Jesus is about to lay into him, take him to the slaughterhouse. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't do that, which again suggests that when he says keep the commandments to enter life, he's being in some way sincere. Um, but he doesn't do that. Rather, he turns to a deeper problem, and that's his disordered love. He says, if you'd be perfect, if you'd be mature, complete as a person, let go and take hold. Release and receive. Children, if you're holding a rock in your hands, both hands, and what you really want to do is is be holding that toy over there, your favourite toy, your favourite doll, whatever it is, what do you have to do? You have to to put down the rock, aren't you, uh, to pick up the toy. And that's basically all that's happening here. Jesus is saying you have to let go of your wealth and follow me. Jesus says, what you lack, remember the man said, what do I still lack? What you lack is in what you love. What you lack is in what you love. Your love is built upon your wealth. Your heart is settled on gold, which a dragon over his hoard. 
And my ultimate call to you is to reorder your love. Leave your wealth and follow me and you'll find true treasure. The biggest, biggest problem of our human hearts is not specifically that we don't follow commandments five to nine, although that is obviously a big problem. And the biggest problem is that we don't keep the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And we fall far short of that. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God of all your heart and soul and mind. And the man goes away sorrowful, doesn't he? Why? Well, first, because he's confident in himself. He doesn't think he needs to follow Christ. But second, his love for his wealth is too strong, isn't it? He will not give it up for Christ. You might have seen um, one of those famous monkey traps uh, where the trapper gets a bottle and a paint bottle, you can't see through it, and puts a, an object in it, a nut or a berry or something, and puts it in, in the bottle. And the monkey's watching, he's in the distance, in the background. And the trapper leaves and the monkey's very curious, so he comes and, and reaches into the bottle and closes his hand around the object in the bottle. Um, the key is, when he's, once he closes his hand over the object, he, he can't pull it out because the neck of the bottle is too narrow. And so the trapper comes and then the monkey's squealing and twisting and Chapa comes and just catches him. And you think it's just so simple, monkey. Let it go. Release it. And the monkey desperately wants to escape. He doesn't want to be there. That's what our hearts are like. God comes to us and says, let go of what consumes your heart and set it on me instead. It's so simple, isn't it? But every man, every woman replies, I certainly will not. There's no way that I'm going to do that. That's what he's saying in verses 24 and 25, sorry, 23 and 24. And he says that it's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Children, you know, the camels over two meters long, longer, wider than my arm span, and a needle is about that long, and the eye of a needle is about that big. And it's the part where you thread the, thread the thread through. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel that big to go through the eye of a needle that small than for a rich man to go into heaven, to get into heaven. It's easier for that to happen. In other words, what's he saying? It is impossible, isn't it? Isn't that a startling thing to teach? It's impossible for a rich man. Wealth itself, it's worth saying, isn't evil. It's just stuff. So how our hearts respond to it that's the problem. It glitters, it's tangible, it promises, it intoxicates. And the gospel comes to rich, rich young man and other people saying, give up your wealth and love the Lord your God and set your heart on Christ. And we say, there is no way, there's no way that I'm going to do that. That's why the rich young man goes away sorrowful. How well do you know the disorder of your heart and how easily your love is set not upon God as we are called to, as is right, as is good, but upon other things. It may not be wealth, maybe career, maybe studies if you're a student, maybe sport, whatever it is. Do you know how easy your heart is dragged after those things? And so we step back from this encounter with the rich young man and we see that our goodness is a delusion and our hearts are disordered in our love 
And the, the question that was on the lips of the disciples might rise in our own throats. Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And the answer, the glorious answer to this passage is anyone. Anyone can be saved. Leads us to our third point. Verses 26 onwards. God's grace is deep. God's grace is deep. For disciples, it's probably a cultural assumption that the rich man is blessed by God and therefore is in good favour with God already. So if he can't be saved, then how can we be saved? And in reply to that, Jesus says some of the most glorious words in this passage, in fact, in the whole book of Matthew. He says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's where the teaching and direction of this whole passage has been leading us, isn't it? Salvation depended upon what I did. If it was human qualification that got me into heaven, then I would be lost. Every man, every woman would be lost. Salvation is impossible for us to gain. It cannot be gained by taking up spiritual disciplines. It cannot be gained uh, by giving to charity and doing charitable acts. It cannot be gained by going to church every week. That's not what gives me salvation. That's not even what makes me a Christian. It can't be gained by having the right view uh, on politics or climate change or social action. I cannot get into heaven unless I abandon all hope in myself and rely fully on God. Salvation is only possible with him. For me, it is impossible. It's worth worth saying, if you're you're not a Christian here this morning, you're really welcome. There's a bunch of guys I don't know. I don't know if you're Christians or not. You might might be asking a question, how can I get eternal life? And and the answer is, only when I'm willing to look into my heart and and see how far I fall fall in uh, loving my neighbour. And only when I see... Uh, how uh, sure I fall in loving my God, or realize how great a sinner I am, and Christ the Lord to save me. And then eternal life will be yours. Uh, that's worth saying as well. That's where the gospel is radically different, isn't it? To, to every other religion, go to any other religion and say, How do I get eternal life? What must I do? And they give you a list. Pray five times a day, make sure you attend our meeting, meditate, give to the poor. Now, None of those things are bad. Jesus himself has just commanded the young man to give to the poor. They don't earn you eternal life. I don't come with my hands full to God saying, look at what I've done. But I come, hands empty. The lyrics of the song we'll sing after the sermon, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Why? End that verse. You must save and you alone. It's a glorious truth that the blood of Christ can pay for every sin, no matter what you've done. And the Spirit of God has the strength to change your heart as well, your disordered heart that loves the wrong things. God can change even that. His grace is deep. That's the way we come to God. And that's the way we continue to live our Christian lives before God. And knowing that in all that he calls me to, it would be impossible for me to do in my own ability. But not with him. All things are possible with him. Christian life uh, is a struggle, isn't it? If you've if you're been a Christian for any length of time, you'll know it's a struggle. The road of God's commandments is a difficult road to take. And we struggle with sin. It rises up. Even when we don't want it to, it rises up and masters us from time to time. Uh, we struggle with coldness in our hearts. We talk about the love of God and loving God. And many of you will know how far you fall short in loving God yourselves. We struggle with our culture, don't we? Um, 
being a Christian is tremendously countercultural. You stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. It can lead to being ashamed, particularly if you're a student coming the first time to uni. You might be facing that struggle and be wondering about yourself, what is it going to be like trying to be a Christian at university? How am I going to keep going? It's easy to think, I need to do something, isn't it? I need to, I need to draw up timetables. I need to be better spiritually disciplined. I need to man up and just get some courage. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but it's not enough. It's impossible to win the struggle. Go to God, I am not enough, and say, help me. I'm spiritually useless about you. And God always delights to answer the humble-hearted. His grace is deep. And just, just as we finish, looking at, at the end of our passage there, Peter says, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Remembering probably that he promised a rich young man treasure in heaven. We've given up everything to follow you. What about us? I suspect actually his thinking is a little bit like the rich young man. Tit for tat. I've done what, look what I've done for you, Jesus. Now, now what are you going to give me? And Jesus' response blows it out of the water, doesn't it? God's grace is indeed deep. It's not tit for tat. He's not a tight-fisted God. He rewards far beyond anything we've ever done in our lives. He says to them, you will sit upon thrones in the new world, to disciples. Verse 29, and everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, a hundredfold more, a hundredfold better, will inherit eternal life. And there's a bit of irony here, isn't there? A bit of irony. The rich young man refused to follow Christ because he wanted to hold on to his wealth. That's wealth that he can never keep. He doesn't have his wealth now, does he? And he turned away and forfeited the treasure that could have been his, given to him by Christ. And if he'd taken it, then he would have it now. It haven't now. How many reject Christ today because they think that what they have already is better than what Christ offers? And even as Christians, how many of us withhold things in our lives from God? Not that area, God. I obey you there, but not there. Because we think it is better not to sacrifice that thing, but hold on to it. I would follow Christ, but I mean giving up my relationship or sleeping around. I would follow Christ, but then what would my family think? I'd be so ashamed. I would follow Christ, but I'd prefer to pursue wealth and success and power. Pastor says to us, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't be like the rich young man. You give up everything to Jesus, your heart, your wallet, your homes, your very lives, and you gain Gain far, far more. He is a gracious and generous Lord. Let's pray now that we'd believe that with our hearts. Our Father, we confess that we often fall into thinking like the rich young man, thinking of what we do for you, going to church, seeking to live out your commandments in our lives. Confess Christ because we feel it's a duty upon us which we must perform in order to earn eternal life. Open our eyes to your grace, we pray. It's only with you that anything that we do is possible. It's only with you that we'll grow closer to Lord Jesus. It's only with you that the disorder of our hearts will be reordered. Pray, give us grace this week and give us 
I pray hearts that turn to you for grace, that trust your promises and come to you with hands outstretched. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.